So Money Episode 690, Elaine Pofeld, author of The Million Dollar One Person Business. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Are you someone who aspires to earn a million dollars a year or more as an entrepreneur? Or maybe you're already making this much money? Today's guest has some incredible insights for all of us. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Elaine Pofeld is on the show today. She's the author of the new popular book, The Million Dollar One Person Business. It's about entrepreneurs who earn more than a million dollars a year on their own without any staff employees. Elaine began her career as a senior editor for Fortune Small Business Magazine. She's been nominated for numerous awards, and she's been a freelance journalist for over 10 years now. Her latest research involves speaking with, interviewing dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs across the country who've hit the $1 million revenue mark. She's discovered what makes them tick, how they reinvest their income, and how much are they really taking home? We talk about margins, as I think that's one of the big important aspects of making money is how much do you actually pocket? Elaine herself is a self-employed journalist and mom of, wait for it, four kids. How does she manage her time, I ask? She's got a surprising answer as well for the one expense that makes her life easier and better. Here's Elaine Pofelt. Elaine Pofelt, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Farnoosh. Thank you so much. I want to talk about your new book, The Million Dollar One Person Business. I really appreciate that you researched this category of business owners. I think it's important to highlight these solopreneurs. Uh, but, you know, in the run up to interviewing you, of course, I did some research and um, you're a prolific writer. You've won so many, you've uh, been nominated for a number of awards. And I wanted to ask you, a question. I, I read a quote that you believe that your kind of um, your unique ability, your superpower, you've said, is to find the genius in other people, and that every person has a pocket of genius. What is your pocket of genius? Well, I think my strong point as a writer is that I am very, very interested in other people's minds and how they work. And I think I'm able to uncover hidden talents and wisdom in people that they may not know that they have. And I think that was what helped me a lot in writing this book. Certainly. And I was going to also add that as a mom of four, let's just mention that too at the get-go. I can't believe that. I have two. <laughs> I'm going, I'm sinking. <laughs> but as a mother of four who's also very much uh, successful in her career, successful in the home life, I would think that that also entails some superpowers. I am good at time management and good at getting up at five o'clock in the morning. Oh, so. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Superpowers, but, oh. but I am pretty focused about how I use my time. And, and I will say that that was something that I learned over time that to if you're a mother, whether you have one child or you have four children or a father, that alone is a really big job. 
And then if you have another full-time career on top of that, that's pretty big. So you do have to set priorities and figure out, okay, what is really important to me and, and let some of the other stuff go that isn't important, those obligations that people ask you to fulfill that really aren't important to who you are as a person and to the people in your life. So I, I learned that gradually, you know, to say no a little bit to things that weren't really relevant to what mattered most to me. Well, thank you for saying that. It's not easy. And I think dads too are in this, uh, in this category too. We're just trying to maximize our time. And I think we are getting better and smarter as parents to identify, you know, what are opportunities? What are not opportunities? What's a yes? What's a no? Speaking of mindset and, you know, being able to identify the right opportunities, your book is about the million dollar one person business owner. Um, and I would love to start by maybe having you explain what differentiates these types of entrepreneurs from others. Do they have a different kind of mindset? Are they happy being million dollar one person businesses? Or are they always just trying to like find ways to grow and scale? Those are really great questions, Farnoosh. I, I, I will say just for the benefit of the audience, there um, in 2015, there were 35,584 non-employer firms that were bringing in 1 million to 2.49 million in revenue. They're fairly rare and they are different in terms of how they think. What, what I found in interviewing the more than 30 entrepreneurs for the book was that they've become masters of maximizing what one person can do or what a partnership can do in the same amount of time as everyone else. And so they, they do that in a lot of different ways. Um, one of them is by using automation in their businesses in a lot of cases. They're early adopters of tools that help them alleviate all the menial tasks or offload all the menial tasks in their day so they can focus on the big picture. Um, I, I, pretty much all of them seem to use scheduling apps, you know, instead of emailing back and forth to set up a time with somebody, they send a link to their public schedule. So you can just pick a time that works for you, but they'll use this in, in many, many ways, sometimes in very industry specific ways. So, um, one of the entrepreneurs in the book, Alan Walton runs a spy camera store online and he uses a program called shipping easy to automate some aspects of the shipping. They realize that by taking the time to, find these apps and to invest in them. Sometimes they cost money. They free up time for the big picture, like the strategy in their business. The, the other things that they do is use contractors um, and automation and, and, and outsourcing. So with contractors, a lot of times they'll dip a toe in the water slowly and say, okay, what is the one thing I'm really not good at or that's taking up a lot of time that would be better spent somewhere else? And they might bring on a web designer instead of trying to teach themselves web design, or they'll bring on a bookkeeper instead of trying to master the fine points of QuickBooks or FreshBooks. And that, again, allows them to have some mental distance to work on bigger things like growth. Um, some of the entrepreneurs in the book used outsourcing so um, they would use co-packers, for instance, if they were in a food business. Um, there, there was one couple Rebecca Cronus and Luis Zavalos, who are honey sellers, and they wind up using a co-packer to package up the honey so that they don't have to have a factory, which costs them some money, but it also saves them 
a lot of labor costs and it allows them to live the lifestyle they want. They have very young children. They, they want the freedom to enjoy their life the way they want to. And so this is, this is an awesome way for them to do it. You can do it also in professional services. So one of the dads in the book, Harry Ein, has a young son. He loves coaching him and bringing him to swim lessons. He brings in 3.5 to $4 million a year in annual revenue selling swag. So things like those pens with your bank's name on them or tote bags with a company mm-hmm. name. Wow, that's from lucrative. His garage. It's lucrative. It, and, and it turns out there's a company he uses called I Promote You that specializes in doing back office for swag sellers. You know, who knew, right? It yeah. seems like such a niche area, but apparently there are a lot of Harry Eines out there and they need things like invoicing done and collections and that sort of thing. So he's been willing to invest in that and he has scaled up his use of that program as the business has grown because what's really important to his business is building corporate relationships. So when he is spending his time, it's meeting with a client who does a lot of business with him or new prospect instead of sitting at his QuickBooks, sending out that boy in the weeds of <laughs> and, it. Um, yeah. And I, those are, I think it's so important because we tend to be do it yourselfers in our yeah. own business by necessity in the beginning because we don't have the cash flow. But once they have the cash flow to support it, they invest. And a lot of people don't. Let's talk about these entrepreneurs' margins. As you described, a lot of these folks are outsourcing, and so they're investing in the systems and the people and the resources to scale, but also buy them back some time. In the end, did you discover that their margins were in some cases healthier than businesses that boasted eight figures? As you've been reporting on small business owners for over a decade, you've probably come across a lot of different kinds of balance sheets. Um, what, where do these margins for these entrepreneurs stack versus other entrepreneurs with different bottom lines? Well, I, I didn't do an exact comparison, but what I will say is because they don't have payroll in the businesses, they don't have a lot of the costs that come with having people on staff in W-2 jobs. So automatically, they're a little bit leaner. And a lot of times, it's not because they don't want to create jobs. It's just that they're not at a stage where they need to have somebody all the time sitting in an office with them or even working remotely. They, they, you know, they might be seasonal. A lot of the e-commerce stores are like that. They're very busy in November and December, and then it slows down for a while. Um, Jason Gagnard is one of the entrepreneurs in the book, and he he runs a high-end event for entrepreneurs called Mastermind Talks. Previously, he ran a business called Tickets Canada that was a scalable business. I, I think it had about 20 employees. And one of the things he learned through that business was that when he grew revenues, Profits did not grow in tandem because of the overhead that I mentioned, you know, things like keeping people on payroll and needing space for them to work. So he got kind of frustrated with it and he ended that business and he started his current business, which is a million dollar one person business. And he decided, you know what, I can achieve really good profits with the business at this size and I have a much better lifestyle with all without all of the hassles that come with having to manage a large team, et cetera. So he found that it was more profitable for him and, and more amenable to his lifestyle to keep the scale to where it is. Now, they, they're all different and they're all in different industries. So the margins are, are very different. The people in e-commerce, for instance, have to buy inventory. And so that, that can take up 
a lot of cash Mm -hmm. and, and the folks in professional services really don't have a lot of inventory. And sometimes all they have in terms of overhead, they work from home, they may have a laptop and a phone and they do a little bit of travel. So it's all over the map. But, But for people who don't have a business, what I'll say is a realistic amount to take home when you have a $1 million one person business, you might be bringing home between $200,000 and $400,000. And you might be in a high tax bracket too. Like if you're in a two income couple, you know, you have to factor that in, but that's still way above the US median income. And it's a corporate level income. So if you're on the fence about, oh, should I do a corporate job because I can make more? The folks in this book are good evidence that if you applied the same effort and intensity you're putting into a corporate career, you could achieve a similar senior level corporate income. And you have more flexibility in your life, which for a lot of us is a a direct correlation to happiness. Well, speaking of happiness, are these entrepreneurs happier now that if, was there any kind of discussion around like, okay, so remember when you were making half a million and you were really hoping to reach that seven figure threshold, how has life changed? Are you happier? Does more money make them happier? And and going back to even my first question, like, are they still eyeing that eight-figure day, that eight-figure payday? Well, some of them are. You know, it's funny because when I fact-checked the book and went back to them, some of them had hired employees and they seemed apologetic about it and said, you know, Elaine, (laughs) I know you you like the one-person business, but I'm not a one-person business, but I'm not against that. And I think there's a natural evolution for every business. And for some, it just makes sense to keep on going and start scaling the traditional way. And others said, you know what, I'm really happy where I am. I have the lifestyle I want. I definitely think all were happier once they reached income stability. It's hard the first year or two in any business when you're just figuring things out and the income is unsteady and you don't you don't have it all nailed down. There's some stress to that. Some of them mitigated the stress by starting the business on the side while they still had their corporate job, which I highly recommend if you can pull it off because then you have some cash flow from your personal income that you can put into the business if you need it and it gives you more runway. But yes, definitely. I think they were happier. I don't want to say money buys happiness because I I don't think that's the case. I spoke with some people who who felt a little bit of depression when they had reached this milestone and then it was like, what's next? (laughs) And they talked to coaches to get back on track. So it's, it's as unique as the individual. Yeah. I mean, I think if you think you're going to be happier just because you got to 1 million in revenue, it's probably not going to be true. But if you use the money that comes in to create a lifestyle that makes you happy and, and put systems in place so you can take breaks from work, you can go on vacation when mm-hmm. you want, that, that'll make you happier. I just spoke with um, Megan Telpner, one of the entrepreneurs in the book. She's an, a nutritionist in Toronto, and she just had a baby. And she and her husband took the summer off and it was just really nice for her because she's been working very hard for the last 10 years. And to have the income in place to do that, and not only the income, but to have the business set up so she could do that, I'm sure made her very happy. She sounded really happy when she was telling me about it. And, and I think there's a lot of people who would like to do that. So so in, in that way, yes, it can make you happy, but you have to sort of plan the lifestyle that will make you happy. Certainly, just to save, to save or earn, to earn, I think um, can feel 
um, uninspiring, especially when you achieve that savings goal or that earnings goal and you're like, okay, so this is sort of anticlimactic. But if you think ahead and go, okay, well, if I make more, then that will mean I can give back more. I can go on more vacations. I can um, take some time off. I think that uh, is a much better way to go after that goal. And um, you'll probably be more satisfied once you hit it. You, you just touched on something really important, yeah. Farnoosh. I found that a lot of the people in the book, once they had this kind of income coming in, were very charitable with the money. And they focused on nonprofits that really mattered to them. So um, Soul Orwell, for instance, he runs a site that sells uh, reports on nutritional supplements. So if you want to read everything there is to know about vitamin D, you could go to his site and get a report written by a PhD or nutrition researcher. And the way he has set up the business, he has one main contractor who has equity in the business and runs it when he's traveling. And he likes to travel three or four months out of the year. He's really a global citizen. He's always on the go. Um, but he also does a lot of work for nonprofits. And I went to an event that he had in New York City called the Cookie Off, where he raised $30,000 in a sort of cookie bake-off for a, a, a foundation that helps send girls to school who are the first in their family to go to high school. So he has been able to leverage his success in business to have an impact beyond the business. And I think that's very common because now people have the freedom. Once, once they're above their basic subsistence needs, they can really give back monetarily and in other ways too, in terms of mentoring other entrepreneurs or giving their time too. Yeah, he's remarkable. I actually want to get him on this podcast. He's got a really interesting entrepreneur story, but also, like you said, he's super philanthropic and just an interesting mind. So it would be cool to pick his money brain. Oh, he would be fantastic. Yeah. He's a lot of fun to talk with. So I highly recommend him as a guest. It's going to happen. We're, gonna, we're working <laughs> on it. Elaine, tell me a little bit about your background and how you became interested in money or I guess more business, but money is a big part of business. Um, did you have a, a good, would you say a positive or an okay experience learning about money as a child? You know, it's funny. I was thinking back to this and I don't remember talking with my parents very much about money. I, my, my dad worked for the New York City Housing Authority. He ran public housing projects. And my mom, for most of my life, was a stay-at-home mom. And then she went back to work. She's a secretary. And it, it always seemed like they had a steady income. And um, they, they, were, they never used credit, which was interesting. They always paid cash for everything. And um, didn't have debt. And they, they seemed to have a pretty good approach to money overall. And so I, I really didn't have any trauma related to money. I, um, I found when I went to college, I, I had to take out a student loan. And that was my first challenge with money because I worked in newspapers when I got out of school. Not, not the most lucrative career. And I remember my first newspaper job. I wound up having to spend half of my monthly salary, which I think was about $1,000 for the salary, <laughs> maybe a little bit more uh, on my rent. And I was always down to my last $5. And I, you know, I realized that living that life of scarcity is not ideal, you, you know, in terms of just managing your money. And I remember at one point I had to defer the payments on my student loan because it got too tight. I think I had a medical bill or something. And, and so I realized the importance of, of focusing on growing your income. And, I, but I never actually wanted to write about it for years. It's, it's funny. I, um, I, I got interested in business reporting by happenstance. I 
had, I started out uh, um, covering things like the, um, general assignment news. At one point, I covered the Hudson County Jail in New Jersey, and I was a city hall reporter in Jersey City. And I was kind of learning the ropes of being a reporter, but it was sort of depressing at times. I, I would sometimes you know, be knocking on the door of somebody whose child was just killed in a fire and interviewing them. And after seven or eight years of that, I started to feel like I needed a break. And so I thought, oh, what else do I like besides doing this kind of reporting? And I liked fashion. And so I applied for a job at Women's Wear Daily, a fashion publication, and I became a fashion features editor. And it was while I was there that I started to get to know the designers. And I became very good friends with one designer, Jean-Paul Saramont, um, who's from Thailand, and learned a lot about the inner workings of a design business. And I just found it fascinating, the whole entrepreneurial lifestyle. So when I had an opportunity to join the Staff of Success magazine and cover entrepreneurs exclusively, I decided to go for it. And that kind of led me to eventually working at Fortune Small Business Magazine, where I was on staff for eight years. And um, and then to my freelance career, where that's pretty much what I cover. I cover careers and entrepreneurship. It was one of these things I was not even open to in the beginning. In fact, I remember going to a job interview at the Daily News and the editor who interviewed me said, you know, what do you want to cover? And I said, anything other than business, because I think business is really boring. <laughs> I've completely opened my mind to it now because I see how much, how important it is. I mean, that, that was one of the things from being a reporter in Jersey City that I learned. There, there was a supermarket that closed and it had a huge impact on the community to not have a supermarket and I realized how important small businesses really were to the whole fabric of the community. And they serve almost as a community center in a way and pull people together and, and they contribute jobs and, and revenue to the community. So I started seeing them as part of a larger whole and that got me more interested in business. I love that. I, 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 I very much relate to your story. Although I have to say, I think I always knew I wanted to cover financial news. Um, just because I inadvertently like fell into it in some ways. I studied finance and then I was like, what am I doing in finance? <laughs> I need to be a journalist. And I thought, well, let me just connect the dots and be a financial journalist and ended up just loving it. Uh, Elaine, tell me a little bit about your personal financial philosophy, especially as I can't go, I can't get over this. A mom of four, you are my hero, a working mom of four, no less, who has a, has a book, you know, and I, I met you out on a Saturday night, which means that you are definitely taking good care of yourself. <laughs> and giving, and, and, it was a rare, it was, well, whatever, you know, <laughs> I know how hard it is to get out of the house. Good for you. Um, tell me a little bit more about your money mindset. My number one rule is to always diversify your income. And I, I didn't always have this philosophy, but uh, in fact, I was always an employee and I had one source of income for the most part. I might have freelanced here and there, but I, I just did it for fun because I was able to cover something I couldn't cover at my job. But what I've realized now, and I think especially as women, it's really important to diversify your income because the way corporate America is set up is very dated it's really set up for the 1950s when the families were, you know, a, a dad that worked, a stay-at-home mom supporting him and raising the kids. And, and you're at somewhat of a disadvantage working in a system that's built that way. It has modernized a little bit, but it, it surprises me sometimes how much it's still the same as it's always been. And so I think you have some insulation against 
some of the things that work against women in that situation, if you have multiple sources of income, so if you bump up against a system that isn't working for you, like the client that insists that you come and meet with them on site that day when you weren't planning on having childcare that day, for instance, you know, that that's the kind of thing where you can say, you know what, that client really doesn't work for me anymore. I have other work lined up. And I'm just going to have to, you know, gracefully part ways because it's just not my lifestyle. I don't want to do that. Whereas you have, you know, if you're, if you only have that one client, you don't have options. I, I even think that some of the situations we see now in corporate America with sexual harassment have a lot to do with, with women's lack of diversity in income sometimes where women don't have the option of just quitting if this situation is abusive. I'm not saying they should always quit. I, I think sometimes it makes a lot of sense to raise awareness in the organization of what's going on. All these situations are unique, but it gives women another option. If they say, you know what, I have this great side business and I've just had it with this company, not paying attention to this issue with this boss treating me badly and men too, honestly, you know, it's not only an issue for women. I, so I think there, there are many reasons for it, but it's basically empowerment so that, that you call the shots mm -hmm. and you can decide which opportunities you pursue and you're not dependent on someone else telling you what you can and cannot do. Well, I would love for you to share one piece of advice that you have lived uh, that has helped you navigate and manage your career as you have built a huge family uh, because I think that it's important for women out there listening, especially those who don't maybe have children yet or want to one day have a family who want to also kick ass at their careers to know that it's possible and that it's to your to your benefit to try to stay in the game as much as you can, even as you're juggling parenthood. Opting out, I get it. It, it sometimes is a necessity, but um, to, in your experience, what do you think are the benefits such as trying to like, you know, hang in there and, and keep your head above water? So because now your kids are older and you're, you're you know, you're really, your career has taken off. Well, I would say you have to do what's right for you because every single family is different and every single person's situation is different. So, for instance, I have friends who are in a couple where their husband travels all the time and is away for three weeks out of the month. It could be hard to have a corporate job in that situation because it, it, sometimes it, the way schools are so demanding these days, I'm sure you're up against this too. There's so many expectations for you to be at the school during the day. There, there might need to be somebody home to do all of those things, but you could still run a business from home in those situations, a flexible business. You have, you have to look at what really matters to you and not worry about what other people think. Um, for me, I, I worked in corporate America for the first four years that I had children. And as it turned out with my kids, I, my older girls are twins and they were very premature and were in the hospital for three months after they were born. So I worked at an arrangement where I worked from home a lot of the time and, and timing was very generous about that. And I did that for four years. But after I had my third child, I felt like, you know what, I love my career. I love my colleagues. I, I love the work that I'm doing, but I feel like my life is all logistics. And it's, 
it's not fun anymore. I feel like I'm enjoying my work less. I'm enjoying my personal life less. So what are my other options? And then I wound up transitioning into a freelance career and that's worked out great. But the reason it worked out really well for me was I did apply the same amount of effort I put into that as my freelance career. I just did it during different hours. So, you know, when I had a newborn, I had four children. So, you know, there was one period where I had a brand new baby. I, I, I would have to work really weird hours. And sometimes I was tired, but I, it was an investment yes. in having my career still going. And it may not be perfect. You know, there were things that, that I would do differently going back. But in the end, now, I, now I'm now i doing stuff that I love. And three of my – well, actually, all four of my kids are in school all day. So I can – I'm pretty much back. To, I could go work in an office now without much impact on my family. But I choose not to because economically, it's actually much better for me to be self-employed. I feel like a lot of times – corporations underpay people, including men and not just women. <laughs> and and once you see what you can earn on your own by applying an all out effort to your career, it's very hard to go back and say, yes, I'll take that salary just for the, the quote benefits. unquote security and the mm-hmm. benefits because you can buy the benefits. They're not cheap. But if you build a strong enough business, you can buy them. And many people can get them through a spouse or a partner. So it, 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 there are many options to consider. Certainly, indeed. And thank you for sharing all of that and, and, you know, being an advocate for women and men. I think that now we're hearing about dads opting out of the workforce. And, you know, while I applaud that and to some extent, I'm also like, everyone needs to be making money. Okay, people, (laughs) everyone should have their own financial independence, even if you're working from home or part time or only on the weekends or you take a break and then you come back, like make that something that you never give up on entirely because I worry about people's financial independence, stability, uh, and all of that. Um, here's I agree. A, yeah. I agree with you because I, I feel like even if you have the greatest relationship in the world with your spouse, things can happen. Your spouse, if your spouse is the main breadwinner, something could happen with their job. Yeah. They could have a health issue. Yeah. They might decide they don't want to do what they're doing anymore. So if you're putting all of your eggs collectively into that basket, that puts you both in a bad situation. So I, I think everybody should, I agree that everybody should always have some income. It doesn't have to be a high income, but it should be something that you could potentially ramp up if need be quickly. Right. Because you may need to. You may need to. Absolutely. Okay. It's time now for our so money question of the day brought to us by Chase Slate, our amazing sponsor. Elaine, what is the number one money habit that you practice now that helps you stay on top of your finances, your family finances, your business finances? Well, this is not one that you will probably expect, but it's doing hot yoga. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. I love that answer. (laughs) Tell me more. Well, what I find, I go to a class that's very hard. Sometimes it's a hundred degrees in there. And I really cannot think when I'm in there, the only thing I can do is the yoga. And what I found is getting that distance on things often helps me resolve challenging financial issues, whether in my business or my personal finances, I, I can step back from them with more distance than when I went in there and I had a million thoughts running through my head. So I would recommend for anybody to have some sort of a meditative practice in your life. Maybe it's just going on long walks or something like that, or actually doing meditation, which I'm, I'm too much of a New York city area resident to do. I'm not calm enough, (laughs) 
like yoga yoga forces me to 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 um, zone out a little bit enough to get that perspective you know what? Health is wealth. I just did a panel with Deepak Chopra on, you know, mindset and wellness and the correlation to your money. And I would think like 80, 90% of how we go about making decisions in life, including our financial decisions, is related to how healthy our mind is, how healthy our body is, our soul, our friendships, our community. So keeping all of that in good shape and healthy and supported, I think will naturally lead to better decisions in all realms, especially with your money. So bravo to you. And I love that answer. No one's ever given that answer here on the show. It's the first, <laughs> it's the first on So Money. Well, I agree with you about health. It's, well, I mean, health can really be costly too. If you, if you have a health situation today, the cost can be astronomical and we can't control everything. But if you do a little bit to try to control what's in your control that can go a long way, especially if you, you're a one-person business. When you're not working, there isn't somebody to delegate to. You may have some contractors, but you really need to be at your peak. It's, sometimes it's hard to break away from the computer and say, you know, I'm going to go to the YMCA and go to my yoga class now. But if you do it, I think the dividends will be great. Elaine, you've been a blast having you on the show. I cannot wait to finish reading your book. And before we let you go, though, I'd love to ask you some so money fill in the blanks. Just finish the sentence, okay? Okay. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? Keep doing what I'm doing. Really? Nothing would change? I might take vacation a little bit more, but I actually really love how I spend my days and I love what I work on. I've gotten to that point where I've kind of gotten rid of the type of work I don't want to do anymore. And um, I, I can't say I would always have had this answer, but as of the last couple of years, I feel like I'm in a good place with my lifestyle. Nice. Good for you. All right. Well, you have to indulge me. Tell me a little about like your average day. So it involves some hot yoga, work, oh, yeah. Kid stuff. My average day, usually oh, I get up at five and I used to actually work from five in the morning till seven. But now a lot of the mornings I either go to spinning or I go to yoga. And then I usually I do some writing or phone calls in the morning. And then a lot of times in the middle of the day, sometimes I'll, if, I'll depending on what I did in the morning, I might go to another exercise class. I like to get out of the house and I live in a suburban area. So there, it's not like I could just go walk around like I'm in New York City and just bump into people in a bookstore. I have to get in the car. Then I come back. I do some more work. And then after school, my kids come home and they have different activities. And my husband and I divide and conquer. You can imagine with four how much driving is involved. <laughs> And so we go to those things. And then my husband is a wonderful cook. So I do not cook dinner. I'm very, very lucky. He loves to cook. It's his hobby. And so um, a lot of times, at, like three times a week, two of my daughters and I are Taekwondo students. We go to Taekwondo at night. And, you know, in between this, there's all kinds of things, gymnastics meets and, you know, other stuff that families with a lot of kids do. I, I you know, occasionally see my friends. I would like to see them a lot more. That's the one thing I would change. I, I don't see them enough just because of all the demands on my time. Um, I've been able to this year now that all my kids are in school, I've been able to actually meet a lot of people I've been having these phone relationships with for years <laughs> through work where I, I often had half day school with my son. So I had to come rushing back and I never really had enough time for a decent cup of coffee with somebody. So I'm enjoying that. So 
um, that's that's my typical day. We don't we don't travel that much. My husband and I used to travel more before we had all these kids. And I would like to get back to that now that my son is old enough to fly without jumping all over the airplane. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we're, we're on the verge of being able to do that. But it's, you know, it's this pretty simple life, but it's, it's, it's what I like to do. Good for you. I'm, I love it. I love those double workouts in a day. You know what? That, that's a good day in my book as well. Elaine, one thing I spend on, one thing that you spend on that makes your life easier or better is... I, I actually hired a wealth management firm to manage my money. I use Carson Wealth Management. And it was one of these things where I kept on putting it off. And I would think I'm going to be a do-it-yourselfer with investments and things like that. And I just, even though I'm a business journalist, I didn't have enough of an interest level in keeping on top of the stock market and that sort of thing to really sustain it. And so finally, my husband and I bit the bullet. And he's actually much more interested in that than I am. But we're so busy that we just, you know, we can't keep up with it. And I have been so relieved. It's not free. <laughs> you know, it's a high-end service, but I have found them to be excellent. And um, I'm very happy that I did that. And now I'm looking for other things like that, that I can offload because the relief I felt, and I, I, I think it could be with any good wealth management firm. I, I think that could be a huge relief for a lot of people. And you might feel it's indulgent, but for me, it was great. Especially when you're married, I think it's helpful to have somebody a third party if you need it to help kind of level the playing field a little bit, give some, give some objective advice. And that way couples don't have to feel like they're at each other's throats and debating everything that someone else is kind of helping you steer towards a common goal. You're so right about that because I think like most couples, we would get into arguments about different things related to money because we, you know, we, we had different upbringings and different lives and you, you bring all your baggage to your financial life. And we were not unique in that. And, and I think that a good wealth management firm knows that's going to happen and they make sure to include both parties and they can be an objective third party. And, and they also, you know, make sure both people are comfortable with things like the level of risk. So they're a good mediator in terms of getting you both to the common ground that you need to be on when you're merging your finances with someone. Yes. All right. I'm going to skip around here and ask you to finish this sentence. When I donate, I like to give to blank because. We'd like to um, give money to cancer charities. Unfortunately, my husband and I lost his sister, Eileen Sicoli, to ovarian cancer 10 years ago. And she was young. She hadn't yet turned 40 and had three children. And we realized how much work there is still to be done in this area and, and with other cancers. So that's our top priority. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. So uh, how is her family doing now? How are her kids? Well, they've grown up and they seem to be thriving. But, you know, as you know, with something like that, it's not something you ever forget. And, I, you know, I think that for the whole extended family, it has driven everyone on to try to give back in this way because it, it is so important. And so many lives are touched by it, not, not only our family, but just so many millions of lives. It's true. I um, we also have a very close friend who's going through a tough bout with cancer, and it's it really puts your life in perspective and makes you realize just in some ways, you know, the cancer treatment discoveries have become. I think there's been so many in the last six months, um, but yet, you know, if you get it under forty, sometimes it's just so aggressive. It's really it's really devastating. Can be. 
It can be. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because there are so many advances, but it's like the speed can never be enough when someone is actually ill. And so I realized this is one of these things where when you throw money at that problem, it helps because you can deploy more great researchers towards it. And there just never seems to be enough money to do all the trials that need to be done. So, so, um, you know, I, there are so many, so many good causes out there. This is the one that we prioritize, mm -hmm. but there are many, many diseases like that where if you can put forth any money at all, you're really helping that cause. And it's so important. Elaine, last but not least, I'm Elaine Pofelt. I'm so money because? I'm so money because I finally reached a point where, although I'm not a billionaire, I am able to live the life I want with my husband and four kids. And now that my book is out, I'm in a position to help other people do that too. Yes. And thank you so much for writing this book and highlighting this uh, this community of entrepreneurs. So important. And we appreciate you. Congratulations. And I'm sure I'll see you again, hopefully again, on another evening out, Saturday night, Saturday night out, mom's night out. We deserve it. I think Thank so. You. I hope we do see each other. <laughs> it, it will be a lot of fun. I had a great time the last time I, I met you. So I'm really looking forward to it. To connect with Elaine, do check out her website. It's ElainePofelt.com. Pofelt is P-O-F-E-L-D-T. You can also catch her on Twitter at Elaine Pofelt. Her new book is available everywhere. It's called The Million Dollar One Person Business. 